We are in Jonah. Um, there's so much that I want to say this morning, and I can just feel the, uh, I just feel kind of like I'm, I'm going to explode here. So uh, as I lose my place multiple times this morning, you guys uh, have permission to not be uh, conservative Northeasterners, and you can say just, help him Jesus, huh? just like that. Say, help him Jesus. All right. Something like that. All right. Uh, okay, we are in our series of Jonah, and we've been talking about it for a few weeks now. Um, and one of the things that we should know, that you already got a pop quiz on this morning, but I'm going to say it again. What kind of story is Jonah? That's good. That's good. Bill will be very pleased you passed. Um, Jonah is a love story, and it's a story, just real quickly, about a guy, a reluctant prophet who was called. Um, he is from... God's chosen people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, uh, and he was called to go to Nineveh to preach. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and we learned a lot about Assyria last week. Uh, it would be the equivalent, Robert Alter put it this way, is the equivalent of calling a Jew in the height of Nazi Germany to go to the middle of Berlin and stand in the streets and say, what you're doing is wrong, and begin saying, repent, repent. How do you think that would go? Not so well. Not so well. It would be a little scary, right? Uh, it, it certainly would be a risking of, of life, to say the least, and the Assyrians were even uh, more harsh in the way that they put down any potential revolt or any potential rebellion. That's one of the things we learned uh, last week. So Jonah got up after being called, and he booked a ticket in the opposite direction, right? He went to the other end of the known world. Uh, we talked about that again last week. Tarshish was literally the end of the known world, as far away from Nineveh as you could possibly go. He got on a ship. God sent a storm. The sailors worked out. It was because of Jonah. They said, who are you? Why are you here? What's going on? And he said, well, I'm a Hebrew, uh, and that means that I worship the one true God who created the heaven, the earth, and the sea. And they said, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You're running away from God, who you say created the sea, and you're on the sea. How's that going to work out for you? Uh, so God sent the storm. The storm came. They, they throw him over. Uh, after not really wanting to, uh, and they end up, the sailors all end up repenting, right? Uh, which, again, was a pretty exciting thing. Even in Jonah's disobedience, God's still using him to save a boatload of people, literally. Now, the famous part that everybody, even who's not in the church, knows about is the fact that Jonah is all about this sea creature, this fish that comes. But that's not really the point, is it? That's hopefully we've learned by now, and, and we're three weeks in, you guys know the point of the story is not the sea beast, right? Or last week, as uh, Bill likened it to the Leviathan or maybe the Kraken, right? We don't know what it is. But it's, it's just a great sea beast of some kind. That's the Hebrew word. It's very generic. Um, so the point is not about the fish. If you're struggling with the fish, just let it go. <laughs> it's, it's not important. The point of the story is that it's a love story, right? The point of the story is that God is gracious, that Jonah misses it, that he runs away. God is gracious. You don't need to struggle with the fish. And by the way, if you are a believer in a God who created the universe and a God who at the center of our belief uh, came and put on flesh, died and was risen again, I'm going to say that, that that's a, a, a far greater miracle than a rather measly idea of being in the belly of a fish for a few days. Um, so... Again, it's not about the fish. But that gets all the airtime uh, outside of our church. So we let that go, and, and we're going to focus on the fact that 
whether this is literal or a parable or whatever, however you want to take that situation, we affirm the historicity of it in many ways, but there are orthodox, that means Bible-believing uh, Christians who take it as a parable, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, evidence for that in terms of the, this, the language and the way that it's written in Hebrew. Uh, it's very exaggerative. There's all kinds of things to it, but let that go. All right, style of the writing, it's a satire. Did we talk about that last week, right? You guys remember that? It's satire. Um, it means that the people that are supposed to be good are often not acting good. We see that in the fact that Jonah, who is his called prophet, is not doing what the called prophet's supposed to do. He's running away. We see that in the fact that all of the pagans who are supposed to be hating God and not listening repent at the easiest drop of a hat, even the cows, go figure. Um, <laughs> everything repents very easily. So all of the people that are outside of God's chosen people are repenting and turning to God and God's showing mercy and compassion. Everybody inside uh, of, of God's chosen people are having trouble following God. So again, it's satirical language in that sense. So that brings us to this idea of Jonah and his sin. And sin is kind of like this trigger word these days where, oh, here we are again. Okay, we're sitting in church, and now we're going to talk about sin again. All right. But, you know, outside of our culture, outside of church, sin has really been a word that has fallen out of favor. But what is it? And if we think about what it is, then, then maybe it's not quite as offensive. And the idea of, uh, of sin is simply that we are using God's creation, we are using God's design in a way that it's not meant to be used, right? In a, in a, design, in a way that's against its design. And that this makes sense in almost every other application of our life, right? If, if, we look at, if we look at our phones, right? If I use this phone against the way it was designed, it's not going to be good for the phone. How? If I use it as a hammer, it's not going to work well, right? This is not going to go, go well for our phone. If we use our cars as snow plows, that's not going to go so well. You're, you're, mechanically, it's not going to function very long. If we use a piece of art that Dave McCumber painted, this beautiful canvas, and we put it out, and we be, begin using it as a dining room table, and we're spilling food on it, that's not going to go well for the art, right? If we're in an orchestra, let's just imagine right now that all of you are in an orchestra. I'm the conductor. I come up here, and I have before me a, a Beethoven's fifth. And, and everybody has their own instrument, and we queue up, and we start playing Beethoven, Beethoven's Fifth, except for Hannah, who on the piccolo decides that she's going to play Stephen Foster's, uh, you know, Camptown Races, okay? <laughs> now, we, that, that's going to destroy the beauty of Beethoven's Fifth. So if we don't follow the design in anything else in our life, then we realize that there's going to be consequences, and that's all that sin is. Sin is simply not following the way that something was designed to be used, God's creation, your life, someone else's life, in a way that is honoring to, to the directions or the intent of what it is. There's one other option there. What, what happens when we're doing that is we're deciding that we know better how to use something. I'm deciding that I know my phone is going to make a better hammer than a phone. Well, that means that I, I, I'm saying I know more than the creator of this phone. Or, again, if I believe somebody else or I lift up something else in that place, that's what an idol is, right? So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust something else to be more authoritative than God. That's an idol. So that's the idea of sin. It's just using things in a way that they're not designed to be used and or putting something in the place of God that only God can take, whether it's our, myself or something else. 
Uh, and those things can be good, right? I mean, like, you can put good things in the place of God, and when it's out of order, it's dislocated, and dislocation hurts. Anybody had something dislocated in their life? Like a shoulder or a thumb? I'm speaking from personal experience. Anyone else? <laughs> Lots of other things. So the idea is that Jonah's sin is just that. It's doing things in a way that, that isn't designed to be used. Um, his main thing, as my youngest son Brian said when we were going over this passage, he said, Jonah's reaction should be when God calls him, yes, I'll go, uh, because that's where, that's where they need God the most. Nineveh's where God, they need God the most. They don't know him, and therefore, that's where I, he should go. But we know that Jonah has two reactions. One is that he's probably afraid. Again, we talked about Nazi Germany going in there. That would be really brutal. Uh, the second thing is, and probably the main thing as we see through the rest of the book, is that he doesn't want God to show mercy to his enemies. He doesn't want to go and preach repentance to them because he's afraid they might actually repent, and he knows that God is a compassionate God and that he will show mercy to them, and he doesn't want that. What is that? What is that? It's unforgiveness, and it's self-righteousness. Those are the two things. And, and if I was going to spend a whole lot of time this morning on one thing, it would probably be self-righteousness. I'm not actually going to do that. But you could, you could spend a whole sermon on this looking at the fact that often that's one of the main sins that comes into God's chosen people or the body of, of who God is, right? Or God's called people. And religiosity is really where that takes root. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. But the idea is that unforgiveness or self-righteousness, both, they, they're two sides of the same coin, right? So if, if we are self-righteous, that means that we don't understand that the reason we are where we are is because God has given mercy to us. It's a gift. The reason that we have faith is a gift. The idea of a self-made man, that's a total falsehood. If you were born at a different time, in a different culture, in a different location, do you think you'd have a shot? If you were born in a refugee camp, do you think you'd be a self-made man? If you were born and, and lived and died in a refugee camp, or if you were born in a place where all you could do was work for 12 to 13 hours a day in a coal mine in northern China, and you work seven days a week, I don't care how hard a worker you are, you're not going to rise above your station, you're not going to be a self-made man. You're a self-made man because of the fact that you have been born in the place in the time where you were. You've been given the parents that you were. You were given the opportunities throughout your entire life. That's hard to hear, isn't it? That, that offends our pride, particularly as Americans. I'm a business owner. At the moment, praise God, I'm doing okay. My business is okay, but that, that has nothing to do with just the fact that I'm working hard, although that does contribute to it, but I wouldn't have that business if it weren't for all of the, the thousands and thousands of opportunities that I've been afforded in my life that wouldn't be there if I was born 200 years ago, or if I was born in northern China. So all of those things come from the fact that I have breath in my lungs, I have the, the skill, the ability to do things, and then the opportunity to do things. All of those come from as gifts of God. Even more so, the fact that we know God is a mercy of God. Because apart from God, we would run and, and curse Him, frankly. Those are hard things to hear. I hope they're, they're not landing 
with too much uh, impact on you personally, if, uh, with, with too much uh, pain, I should say. All right, when we, when we left off last week, Jonah had run away, and he was in a bad spot. He was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, which, by the way, is what all sin is. It's turning away from God and going, hoping that he's either not who he says he is or not powerful enough or doesn't see us, and he begins to go down. He goes down to Joppa to get on a ship. He goes down into the ship. We see it in verse 3. Then down into the sea, then down into the belly of the beast, and then down into Sheol, as we'll see in the first few chapter, or first few verses of this week's reading. Down. That's where sin takes us. It takes us down into the pit. It takes us down by degrees. James 1.15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the progression. Desire conceives, so the desire to do something against what the creation says, who the creator says is the design. When that conceives fully, when we actually act it out, that becomes sin. When sin matures and grows, it leads by degrees to death. Down to Jaffa, into the ship, into the sea, into the belly of the beast. Now, Jaffa, he could have turned around, right? When he just got onto the ship, he could say, wait a minute, nope, I changed my mind. But it keeps going, sin has given birth, and in the end, he's in Sheol. We reenact Jonah's flight every time we sin. We act like he can't see us. We flee from the presence of God. Let's pick up in chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, Jonah chapter 2, as David said, Jonah is a tough book to find because it's only four chapters, and it is very small, but it's closer to the New Testament if you open up or pull it up on your phone. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord. Everybody say, I called out. That's good. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O my God, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Say, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That's a literal translation. I like that last part, vomited Jonah out. We'll get to that. All right. Um, I just want to take a, a couple minutes and kind of breeze through this thing. Um, not breeze through, but go through and highlight just a couple things. Uh, the first thing is the fact that this language should be very familiar to you if you spent any time in the Psalms. 
Uh, the language here that he's using is, I mean, it's, it's just chock-a-block full of psalm references. And if you want to spend a little bit of time this week looking at all the cross-references of this and, and begin reading the different psalms and the lamentations and, and uh, references in Old Testament, uh, everything from 1 Samuel where uh, you have Ruth's song all the way through, uh, again, Lamentations where, where uh, Jeremiah is, uh, is crying out to God, you'll see this, I mean, the same language is used over and over and over again, all through Psalms, all through these things. It's, it's the classic story of God's people calling out uh, and, and the imagery of drowning in sin, drowning into the pit, sinking into the mire. I called out to the Lord, uh, again, this is the, the way that so many Psalms begin right? If you open up and you begin flipping through, I call out to the Lord. I cry out to the Lord. I, I, uh, it, all day, all night, and all day, my tears have been my food, but I call out to the Lord. Throughout the Psalms, you're going to see that in, in I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of Psalms. So go through that this week if you can, if you have time, and, and, and spend a little bit of time looking at this language. It's, it's really, it's, it should be very familiar to you in that sense. You, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, You'll see that uh, Psalm 3, Psalm 118, Psalm 42, uh, your billows and your waves crash over me. All of these things are, you're, you're sinking down and you're beginning to drown. Your life is fading from you. Dave read this, you pulled out this morning, the idea of when my life was fading away. All of these things, this is how sin acts, right? We talked about it. Sin conceives, or sorry, uh, desire conceives, gives birth to sin, sin gives birth to death. As you are falling away and, and spending more and more time in sin, you can begin to feel yourself choking out. Any addiction will show you that in real time. You can begin to feel the waters rising up to your neck and, and choking you out, and then your life begins fading away. But you do see in, in this a, a number of other things. You see um, ancient cosmetology or in, in terms of uh, the geography thing. So we're going down. Everything is going down. We're going down into Sheol because that's where the understanding of in the belly of the earth or in the heart of the earth is where this, this idea of away from God. Uh, but we know that Psalm 139 says, where can I go if I make my bed in Sheol? You're there. So the idea of, of him being separated from God is really what he was do, trying to do. He's trying to flee from God, but we see that he's still there. Uh, I'm driven away from your sight. The idea of being out of sight, this was, that was sorry, that was, uh, what, what verse was that? Four. Um, I, I said, I am driven away from your sight. The idea of being out of the sight or cut off from God, that is the biblical definition of hell. An existence apart from God is what the biblical definition of hell is because it's, God, if God is everything that is good, when God withdraws from that, now what are you left with? everything that's not good, right? That's the concept. The absence of God is the concept of hell. And there's, of course, there's more to the doctrine of hell than that, but we're not going to go into it. But the concept is, with apart from God, that is where he's, he thinks he's headed. That is where he realizes he is. And, but, but he says, yet shall I look again upon your holy temple. He looks at the temple, and he begins remembering. And this is where all through verses 1 through 8, we, we see him down, sinking down, drowning, things getting wrapped around. We have serpentine imagery if you want to bring into, again, the idea of the Leviathan or the idea of, of, of uh, the serpent, um, weeds round around, wound around my neck, um, all of this stuff. 
is being dragged down into the bars of the earth, being underneath the mountains at the roots of the mountain. And then, in verse 7, I remembered the Lord. I remembered the Lord and his temple. What is he doing? He's beginning to look towards what God has set up as a reminder of who God is. And then those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope. That's a, that's a, this is a verse 8. That's a tough verse to translate. In fact, the reason that we know it's a tough verse to translate is if you go and read all the other translations, they're all slightly different, which means there's some awkwardness in the Hebrew to try to get it into modern-day English. Um, and so the, the basis there that I want you to get out of that is the idea that if we are worshiping idols, we have forsaken our hope of who God is, and we've forsaken the idea of what a steadfast love is, but God is still faithful. And, and that's, that's why we can, with a voice of thanksgiving, begin to sacrifice the vows that we paid. Okay, let me, let me get into this, uh, this next part here. What are we looking at overall? What is the whole thing that we're looking at? This is an idea of repentance. This is an idea of what it means to call out to God, to remember who he is, and then to begin to commit your ways back to him. I told you this is where I lost my place. There's so much I'm trying to say here. It's uh, you first say help in Jesus. All right. So there's three steps, like I said, that are modeled. And, and I had you repeat them as we were reading them in case you didn't notice. The first step is what? Cry out to God. Call out to God. Right? Good job. Who said it? Somebody back there. Good job. All right. Somebody's paying attention. All right. Call out to God. Remember God is the second step, and then commit or sacrifice is the third step. So cry out to God. That's verses 1 through 6. And most psalms start here, right? Recognizing the pain that you're in and then calling out to God. Did you know that pain is really just a sign that something's wrong? That's the whole point of pain. Did you get that? Pain is just the idea of realizing that something is wrong. If something hurts in my foot, I'm supposed to stop running, look down, and see the nail that's sticking out of my foot and pull it out, right? Pain is a sign that there's a problem. If you, if you read C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain, you'll see that reference in there. Pain is a sign that there's something going on and wrong, and so we cry out to someone who can help us. That's the first part of all of this crying out to God. And we only cry out to God when we realize there's a problem and we, we realize that we need help. That's why, by the way, Jesus said to the man at Bethsaida, do you want to be healed? Because there are some people that just want to stay in the pit. They don't realize that there's a big enough problem. They don't feel that pain deep enough to want to do anything about it. Secondly, we remember and again, this is verse 7 through 8. Psalm 42 picks up on this. Um, why are you downcast, O my soul? We begin reminding ourselves who God is by asking the question, where are you? Why are you downcast, O my soul? We begin asking these questions of ourselves, and we realize that, remember that faith is not a talent, it's a gift, and it's reminding ourselves, not mindlessly believing something, but it's reminding ourselves of the facts that we know. If I need surgery and the doctor says I need surgery and the doctor convinces me that I need surgery, 
that's all well and good until that morning when I'm freaking out and I see all the knives sitting on the table and I say, wait a minute, why am I here? If I listen to my emotions in that moment, I'm out the door. But I have to remind myself, hey, here's why I'm here. Here's the reason I'm here. And this is good that I stay here in this moment and get my arm cut open. Okay? <laughs> Again, faith is not a talent it's reminding ourselves of what we know and then letting that inform our actions not our emotions in that moment we remember that idols can't save us we remember that our, our uh, a steadfast love and when we put them in the place of God it will steal our hope and our expectation of God's salvation then we see sacrifice in verse 9 and we're not talking about the bloody uh, sacrifice of animals because he doesn't delight in that how do we know that? Psalm 50, Hosea 6, Psalm 51, Psalm 40, Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 7, Hebrews 4, all of them, they, and they all say basically what Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a, a, a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise these things. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. It means not that you are a broken person, but that you let your spirit of pride and the idea that you can stand in the place of God fall away and say, Lord, I humble myself before you. So how do we get there from low to high? All of these psalms, they, you see these things. My, again, Psalm 42, my, my tears were my food day and night. And then two verses later, yet shall I hope again in the steadfast, I, I, will, I will glorify God again. These, these things, how do we get there? How did Jonah get from the belly of the beast all the way to salvation belongs to the Lord? How do you get there? You call out, remember, and you sacrifice. This is us turning back. This is what repentance is. True repentance is turning away from sin, and using, which, is, again, is using God's creation in a way that's not designed for, and following God as king. We call out to God. This is us recognizing the pit that we're in, wanting to be out. We remember the truth of his promises that, that look, the prodigal son, this is a great example of this. The prodigal son, a story that most of you guys know. Um, there's, there's a guy sold his birthright, goes into a foreign nation, uh, and, and has already taken all his inheritance, blows it on all kinds of stuff, and then he ends up working feeding pigs, okay? So he's feeding pigs. He looks at the stuff that he's feeding the pigs, and he looks on that stuff with envy because he is starving. And this is the greatest version. I love this. When he comes to himself, that's that moment of realizing when you're in the pit. He says, when he comes to himself, he remembers, and then he goes on to talk about what he remembered of his father's house. He remembers that even the hired hands in his father's house have plenty to eat. And that's, so again, come to yourself. We remember what's, who God is. We remember the truth of who God is. We remember his purposes. And then we commit and we sacrifice. We offer praise and thanksgiving. The prodigal son had rehearsed his speech so many times on the way back uh, to his father. And he says, I've, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. And, and just make me as one of your hired hands. I don't need to be your son. You know. But what happens? How does God respond to this? He runs. He runs out to him. He cuts off the speech before he even has a chance to finish his speech, and he, and he makes him a son. He restores his sonship. He puts a robe on him, puts a ring on him, kills the fatted calf, the whole nine yards. This is where repentance leads. 
We're going to get more to that in just one second. Let me give you two little side discussions real quickly. The first is about repentance in general. Repentance, again, is turning from something to something else. Okay? Now, I can turn from alcohol, or I could turn from uh, you know, eating lots of candy, and I could turn to something else unhealthy. Well, I don't, I don't drink anymore, but now I chain smoke like crazy. Or, or I don't you know, eat tons of candy anymore, but now I'm eating lots of Fritos. I don't know. So, <laughs> again, off the top of my head, I hope I didn't offend anybody who loves Fritos. But the, <laughs> the idea being, and see, I told you, Dave said I wouldn't say anything foolish, just give it time. Um, the idea is that we turn from our sin and we turn to God. That's true repentance. We're turning from our sin to God. But what, how does this look for most of us? And I can speak from my own experience here. When I've been caught in habitual sin, so many of my prayers for so many nights, for so many years were, God, help me not do this. Lord, help me not do this. This, this temptation is right here. This desire is right here. Help me not do this. Help me not do this. What am I focused on? This. I'm focused on the sin. I'm still giving worship, glory, honor, and airtime to this sin. What do I need to be doing? Looking at God. And that, it, I, church, the day that he broke into my mind and began teaching me that, it, it, it transformed me and it broke me so quickly. He said, why are you looking at this? Give me the glory. Give me the honor. Look at the beauty of what I've done. And so now every time that desire came into my head and saying, instead of saying, help me not do this, I simply said, Lord, you are amazing. You are king. I began remembering all the things of who God is, all of the promises of what he's done, all of the things that he has said I am. He calls me a son of God. That He has already redeemed me. He has already forgiven me. There is no sh shame or sin or condemnation. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. That is what I began reminding myself of, and suddenly this became a trigger to worship God. Guess who stopped using this to mess with me, right? Now all of a sudden this desire begins to fall away, and God becomes bigger. The more airtime I give this, the less I've actually turned away from it, the more attention I'm still giving it. But now as I turn and I give God the glory, and I remind myself of who God is and the beauty of what he's done, now he gets the glory, and now I'm called into something better, and I'm called into a way of using my life, my body, my, the people around me in a way that God, the designer, has designed it. You see, that's what repentance is. It's not focusing on what we're not doing. It's focusing on who he is and what he's called us to be. That's repentance. Now, the second part of this, you should begin having this little question in the back of your mind. So, Dave, wait a minute. If this psalm of Jonah is so good, what is, what's happening here where the rest of the book, he's still running away and he's still not quite following it? If, if that's in your mind, then that's good. You're paying attention. And the concept is we have repentance that's true and we have repentance that is religious repentance. And I just want to just throw out the idea that chances are Jonah was really doing some religious repentance there. And you'll see that as evidence in the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee who are praying for righteousness. And the Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, but that I'm, you know, I do all the right things every day. And then the tax collector who, sa who says, have mercy on me. And only he went down justified. 
Okay, I'm running short on time. Let me keep rolling here. Where does true repentance lead? Even a, even a bad repentance, frankly, as in the case of Jonah here, leads to God's mercy and his compassion. He immediately wants to lift you up. He immediately wants to restore you and begin using you again in, in, in beauty instead of in disobedience. Because guess what? He's going to use you whether he uses your disobedience or whether he uses your obedience. God is always working. He is always going to accomplish his purposes. The question is, how's it going with you? Are you in the belly of the beast or are you being used in your purposes in a beautiful way? So Jonah gets vomited out. Is that a commentary? Maybe. Maybe. Is that God kind of laughing a little bit, saying, okay, you're repenting. We throw you up. <laughs> but he gets vomited out on dry land, and he goes and will learn the second part of the book is a, is a parallel to the first two chapters. The chapters three and four are going to be a parallel to chapters one and two, where, again, he's given the same commandment, go to Nineveh and preach. And we'll see what happens in the next couple weeks. But let me give you a couple quick takeaways here. The first, God is gracious. Amen? He's quick to forgive. He's quick to show mercy, even a lame repentance, and much more so for a genuine repentance, will we be changed by him. Last week, we ended with the question, what's the last thing that God clearly told you to do that you haven't done, and why haven't you done it? Well, this week, I want to continue that question and focus on these two questions. Where are you running, and what are you protecting by running? Where are you running? That's the first question. So Tarshish might be uh, obvious things that, that we run to, right? Again, uh, not to pick on alcohol, but alcohol is an easy one to pick on. If you are constantly running to get drunk, I'm not talking about having a glass of wine with dinner. I'm talking about going to lose yourself in a bottle because you want to numb yourself to pain that's in you, you want to numb yourself to the world around you, that's a pretty obvious running away to Tarshish. If you run to Netflix, again, Netflix is not a bad thing if you watch a show on Netflix, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, are you vegging out for hours on Netflix to numb yourself to what is going on in the world around you, to relationship pain? to things that you could be doing to be running unencumbered towards God and towards the kingdom and towards the calling that is on your life, or are you just watching a show for an hour? There's two, different, two very different part intents when you, when you slip into that. Are you running from indifference? Or, I'm sorry, are you running to indifference? Are you, you, know, you just numb to people, to pain, to anything else? The second, that, so those are, those are obvious Tarshish running to. The second thing you could be running to is the temple. What if Jonah ran to the temple instead of going to Nineveh to preach? And guess what? That's still disobedient. So what does that look like for us? Well, it might look like we, we pour ourselves totally into family at the exclusion of everything else, even if our family is a good thing, and we are supposed to be pouring ourselves into that. If that becomes the ultimate thing, again, we've supplanted the ultimate thing with a good thing, that becomes a bad thing. Okay. Uh, we pour ourselves into work. Again, work's a good thing. But if I pour myself into it completely, that becomes my God. I worship. I, I give it all my attention, all my worth, all my time. Then that becomes the ultimate thing, which becomes a bad thing. Church. Ooh. Careful. 
hearing about God, getting excited about God, but never taking up action and asking, where can I serve? That could still be ignoring the calling on your life. Ministry, I could still be pouring into ministry, but if it's not the one that God called me to do, and I know it, that's disobedience. So where are we running to? But more importantly, the question is, the second question, ultimately, where are you running is not important. The question is, why are we running there? What are we, what are we protecting? So Jonah was protecting his hate for his enemy and his self-righteousness. Are you protecting comfort? Am I protecting comfort? Reputation? Pride? Unforgiveness? Self-righteousness? My treasure? Treasure being time or money? Those are things that we could be running to, to something else to protect those idols, those things. Uh, what can you do today? Well, we can begin to lay those things down. If we recognize them, then we can begin to call out. If we recognize the fact that, hey, each one of us, everyone in this room has a specific calling on his or her life that God has a job for you. He's going to accomplish his purposes, whether you're disobedient, like Jonah running away, or whether you're obedient and you go to Nineveh. Wherever you are, you have a Nineveh that you're being called to. It could be something as simple as talking to your coworker. It could be simple, something as simple as learning how to smile and be friendly with the person at the checkout and say, hey, how are you doing today? And really mean it, not just like, a, how are you doing? Bye. Like, it could be something as simple as that. It could be something that you're called to go to Turkey and witness to a, a nation that is 0.02% Christian. And you risk your life going. I don't know. I don't know what God has on your life, but I know that he has a calling that he's calling you to. Make sure that you're not running to something else to protect some idol that you're putting up in place and you're afraid to follow that calling because of it. So what can you do today? Begin laying it down. Here's the real question. What are you willing to do today? What can you do? You can lay those things down. What are you willing to do today? What do we need to have on the altar? See, God's mercy and... and, and uh, Worship team, you can be making your way up. God's mercy and desire is to restore and to resurrect. We see it in every song. We see it in throughout every story of Scripture, not in every song, because some songs end with curse God and let me die. But, you know, again, they're speaking to God, so they're not being unfaithful. The idea is where are you today? Are you in Joppa? and you're just getting ready to buy a ticket, turn back now. Are you on the ship? It's not too late to jump over and turn back. Are you in the belly of the beast? Call out to God and let him save you. I had a friend who used to say, it doesn't matter if you've taken a thousand steps away, Jesus is always only one step back. Why? Because he's pursuing you. At every moment, he's pursuing you, and he wants you to be restored, and he wants you to do it. He has a calling for you. Arise today and turn towards that. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. Each one of us has been in the pit. We've been on the boat. We have turned away. We have run at some point in our lives 
I pray, Lord, now that we would turn back to you. I pray, Lord, if there's someone in here today that needs to come up and pray with someone after the service and just have them agree with, hey, this is a thing in my life that is bad, and I just am having trouble laying it down. I pray that there would be somebody that they could grab right now and begin praying, even during this last song. That our hearts would be turned back to you and warmed, that, Lord, you would do your work of resurrection. I don't know where everyone is this morning, but I know that each of us, whether we have been walking with you for years and years, or whether this is the first time, it's always the same answer. We just turn to you and we say, salvation belongs to the Lord, and I can't do it on my own. Father, work in us, change us, resurrect us. In Jesus' name, amen.